So we have reached verse 21 of chapter 3. Paul has brought his intro here. He's talked about how he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. And that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he then began to go into and show that human beings are without excuse before that God. And they can't escape his judgment, whether you're a pagan idolater or whether you're a person who sees himself as a moral good person. Or even if you were a Jew who received God's truth but you walked in the ceremonial reality of it as opposed to the spiritual reality of those things. Nobody was escaping God's judgment. And he's left everyone really in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So Paul at this point has left everyone standing before God, mouth closed, guilty. Jew, Gentile, Whatever type of human being you think you are, you are standing before God under sin, guilty before him as the judge. Now, he doesn't leave us there because the Lord doesn't leave us there, thankfully. And in verse 21, he says this, but now that but changes things, we begin to find grace for the guilty here. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's going to bring us all the way back to that righteousness of God that he talked about in chapter one. And he's going to begin to lay this out in some pretty incredible terms. Justification at this point becomes a very important word in the letter, mentioned some 50 times. And to be justified again is to be pronounced righteous in Christ's righteousness. Uh, again, it said, just as if, an easy way to remember it, you hadn't sinned. And what we see here, 3, 21 through 26, we're justified on the grounds of grace, 27 through chapter 4, by the means of faith, and for the ends of, in beginning of chapter 5, peace and assurance and relationship with the Lord. Paul's going to kind of draw this out for us. He is going to say, as we look through this, I think it's important to remember, because it's one of the most incredible passages of Scripture here. He's going to tell us some incredible things about salvation. He is not telling us everything about salvation, which would be impossible. There are plenty of other things that the Scripture says about our salvation. But here he's telling us a pretty specific thing about our salvation, and it's remarkable what he does tell us. So, what he begins by saying is that this righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from human works, is revealed. It has been made known. It has been shown because guilty man needs the revelation that they can be made righteous by a totally separate principle from their own actions. Again, everybody at this point is standing before God guilty. And now they're saying, now what? Okay, if all that is true, if I'm a person who I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm broken on the inside, my nature is separate from God, it works its way out one way or another in a life that cannot match his holiness, now what? What can you reveal to me? And what Paul is saying is there's a righteousness from God that has nothing to do with human beings that is revealed apart from the law. You didn't have to get there on your own. And it is also spoken about, notice he says, by the law and the prophets. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The emphasis again is, Paul's, when I'm, when I'm teaching this, when he's speaking to people about these things, he's not bringing something that's not biblical or something new or a new gospel. He's showing that this was God's plan all along. This is what God always meant to do. He's just bringing it to fruition. And the emphasis of a consistent biblical message is here with Paul and even through the apostles preaching in the book of Acts. You can look at passages such as Acts 3.18, 10.43, 13.27. There was this, and I think it was unique, there was a, a realization that the apostles were living in a special time of God's work. 
the Messiah was there. They walked with him. The, the remarkable promises in the Old Testament were fulfilled right before their eyes. Paul would say to the Galatians, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So they knew they were saying something remarkable because they were living in remarkable times. And not only had the Messiah come, but he had died and paid for sins and risen again. And his resurrection and what God accomplished showed them something that was talked about all through the scriptures. And Paul wanted to continue to tie that back. What I'm telling you right now, what Christ did, it's all a part of the scriptures. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even, he says in 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The word even, uh, as he goes into that, gives us, it, it further kind of qualifies this revealed righteousness of God, and it, he tells us two things. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, first, and second, to all and on all who believe. So Jesus is the one in whom our faith must be placed. He is the one who revealed what God's righteousness would be. So we have to put our faith in him. I don't look back to the law now. I look to Jesus, to the Messiah. God has revealed this hope for sinners, and he's revealed it through Jesus. Again, Paul would say in Philippians 3, 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is what they were looking for all along. And he says it was in Jesus Christ, which is remarkable because there would be people who knew him as a man, but also knew him as the Son of God saw him alive and also saw him risen. And they would recognize, man, we are living in times, the fullness of time of God's plan working out in front of us in a pretty remarkable way. And second, the righteousness through faith in Jesus is to all, because all men are sinners, and they're all in need of God's answer of sin. And this is the good news. Our need for righteousness is universal, and the offer is universal. Everybody needs it, and everybody's offering it. There's nobody who's cut out. It's not just given to a select group. It's not given to those who are the nicest first and later to other people we kind of don't like. It's extended to everyone. I think sometimes that that all there, again, can be hard to believe personally. Sometimes it's almost easier when you say God died for the world or for men to say, okay, I believe that than, than me, particularly if you're a person who you know you're a sinner. And you feel like your sin can put you in a different category. Yeah, but I am different than these other individuals. And maybe you are in some ways in terms of the sin in your life. So was Paul, the apostle, but you're still part of the all. And there's, there's, there's easy ways that the enemy gets into our lives and makes us think that maybe it's not extended toward me in the same way. Maybe it's extended toward other people freely and in the riches of his grace, but maybe not me. But Paul says, it's to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Jew, Greek, the person who feels like they're a great sinner, the person who feels like they're not, it's extended to both. The simple question is, do you hear God's word? Have you come to Jesus Christ for God's righteousness? Have you confessed your need of him as a savior? It's, it's simple, actually. If I ask one of my children, have you confessed about doing that thing, they would easily be able to tell me whether they had or not. 
extended to all. For there is no difference because, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, past tense. Fall short is more present tense, the idea being we're continually falling short of his glory. Sin has entered into humanity. He's going to talk about this more in chapter 5 through Adam. And all of humanity is infected with that sin on one level or another. And we all continually play that out. In, in what way do we fall short of the glory of God? In every way. <laughs> There's not a way that we don't fall short. All of us in our lives, in one way or another, in our image, in our purpose, in our destiny, outside of him, we are continually and only falling short of the glory of God. The incredible thing is, and the remarkable part of the story, is that the promises that happen and come through Jesus Christ bring us back into the glory of God. Not only just into it, but to share in it. To reflect it. To have it be a part of our lives in ways that really is pretty hard to imagine. Paul will say, just in Romans, in Romans 5.2, in Romans 8.18, in Romans 9.23, in Romans 15.7. He'll bring up all these passages where we, again, are sharing in that glory. It's the hope of glory. It's that these, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And he just goes through over and over and over again. What we have fallen short of outside of him, we are promised. It's, it really is the fairy tale story that there's something ahead of us that is so incredible that it puts everything else here to shame. That all the difficulty we could go through, Samuel Rutherford said here, isn't even going to be worth our first night's welcome home in heaven. That for you and I, what we fall short of is incredibly more tragic than we could think. And what we're brought back into is incredibly more remarkable than we could think. But it's the Holy Spirit who begins to make those things real to us. We've all fallen short. There's no difference. And we're all in need of this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in 24 through the end, he's going to show why God can righteously do this for us, which is very important. So he says in 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Now, that's a mouthful. It's a pretty incredible sentence. Paul begins to draw out, speaking about our salvation, these words that our salvation includes notice, justification, which again was a legal type of term, redemption, which came from a slave market, propitiation, which came from a sacrificial kind of temple picture. This salvation includes so much and really so much more that he even puts in here. Um, it, it would be like, it's going to sound kind of cheesy, but if we talk about a rainbow, a rainbow as a whole includes a lot of different hues. Roy G. Biv, if you're science So the, the reality is all of those things together make up the rainbow. And it's almost like Paul's talking about, you know, blue, green, and orange here. But... But when the Bible talks about our salvation, it's this incredible thing. There's, there's justification, there's redemption, there's propitiation, but there's reconciliation, which is a term that refers to relationship and us being having been far from him and now brought near. Him as our father, which is some of the 
greatest pictures that we have in the Bible. There's regeneration, which talks about life and death. There's sanctification. There's glorification. There's, there's a whole lot of biblical words that go into our salvation. That's why Hebrews says, what? What, what do we have left if we neglect so great a salvation? The salvation that Christ has purchased for us is so incredible. But Paul here is talking specifically about God being just in putting God's righteousness on sinners who have fallen short. And to talk about that, he wants to start with justification. So he says here that we are justified freely by his grace, freely as a gift, a gift given by the only person who's worthy of giving it. Again, we are not worthy of receiving it. He is worthy of giving it. The word, the idea of freely there means without cost. Revelation 21, 6 and twenty two seventeen, where Jesus invites people to come and drink freely. That's the idea there. You and I, certainly on our own, if we look at ourselves, we are not worthy of receiving this gift. But he, in who he is as God, is worthy of giving it. It's the type of gift that he's worthy of giving. And Paul says this justification has come freely by his grace. It's something that he has extended. Again, in the Old Testament, it was promised. Isaiah 53, 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It was promised. Paul would say in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God promised. And he says, Jesus has given this justification freely. And how does, how does that come to us? How, how can he legally pronounce us not guilty? Well, here's what he says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the payment of a price. Again, that word redemption came from the slave market, or it could have been prisoners of war. And there was an idea of purchasing them to free them from bondage. It's even used in certain ways of the old, in the Old Testament of the children of Israel being redeemed from Egypt and from Babylon, the bondage that they were in. And certainly it would be used in the day of buying a slave to set them free, particularly with the idea of setting them free. Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many to pay a cost, to free from bondage. And there's, there's an implied relationship there. Right? Obviously, the person who sets you free, you're, you're going to have gratitude toward. There's something unique that connects you in that. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Only the riches of his riches of his grace could pay that ransom. How, how can he freely justify us? Well, because he paid the ransom. Because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, these things are all tied together, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. How are these things revealed in Jesus Christ? Well, it was Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. Set forth has the idea of presenting before the eye. God presented something in this process of our salvation where we become justified because of the redemption price that he paid. How, how do I know that's true? Well, something was set forth. 
the, the word propitiation is not used a lot. It's used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament of that mercy seat covering. It has the idea of a satisfaction paid. It was used particularly in, in those, those times as a word that were referred to a temple or an altar and the sacrifices there. And it's used as well as that covering the mercy seat where the high priest would go on and go in once a year and sprinkle the blood. That mercy seat was hidden. Nobody was allowed in there where God's presence was. And how, how can we be pronounced justified and given a righteousness apart from our own works? How that could happen, it was, it was hidden in a sense. But Paul says now it's been put before your eyes. God has done something in this Godward aspect of the cross. The picture in Leviticus in the Old Testament from Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and this is God's words, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. God gave them something, showed them something in this ritual, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. The command was given to make sure the Israelites didn't offer their sacrifices in other places or to other gods. God says, I have given you a place to see, to know that covering has been made for your sins. But that Old Testament place that spoke of bloodshed by an innocent party to cover the guilt of another which we see all through the Old Testament, was, was a picture of something that he knew would come, that would be set forth. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on Romans, says, The death of Christ, then, is the means by which God does away with his people's sin, not symbolically, as in the ritual of Leviticus 16, in which the material mercy seat figured, but really... And really, in a twofold sense, the sin has been removed not only from the believer's conscience, on which it lay as an intolerable burden, but also from the presence of God. Paul says something pretty remarkable here. God wants people to look and see. If you wonder how, yeah, but how can my sin be forgiven? Okay, I agree with those things you said earlier. All right, well, you've been pronounced justified. I don't deserve that. Well, a price has been paid, a ransom price. Well, I'm not sure. What does that even look like? Look at the cross. Jesus Christ has been set forth as a propitiation. The Godward aspect of the cross has been met. There's, there's another form of the word propitiation there in the New Testament, and it's used where Jesus talks about the two men who go into the temple and the Pharisee, who's thankfully he's not like other men. But then there's a man who can't even lift his head to heaven. And he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful is a form of that word propitiation. The idea is God be propitiatus toward me, a sinner. Right? Cover. Cover it. And... The Lord has done that for us, and he's given us a place to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus not pay enough for your sin? Do you need a higher cost to be paid than the blood of God running into the ground, the very earth that he made? Is there something more that he could set forth that could ease our conscience? Something greater, not just than a lamb, but the lamb of God. You're not going to find another place. Seems like a strange story. Actually, it's the type of thing only a trinity could probably make up. Because a man would never have that idea. But God has. And in his son, he is set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith, I still have to look at that and in faith say, 
God, you have given that to me, like that lamb was given for the Israelite. You have given your son for me to demonstrate his righteousness. You know, this truth is under attack, really, in our day and age. It always has been. But people don't like the idea of a price being paid for our sin, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. They don't like the idea of Jesus having to die for our sins, to be set forth in that way. They like the cross, but they like it as a symbol. They like it if Jesus died to beat Satan's power. They like it if Jesus died as kind of an example for us to be willing to suffer for other people. But people don't like it that Jesus had to die in our place for my sin. It's, it's what the Bible teaches. Very clearly, even just in the book of Romans, Romans 4.25, Paul will say he was delivered up because of our offenses. In 5.6, he will say Christ died for the ungodly. In 5.8, he'll say, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In 5.9, he'll say, we have been justified by his blood. In 5.10, he'll say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In 8.32, he'll say he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. I could keep going. The Bible is very clear. Jesus died for us. Not for himself. For us. And he has been set forth as a propitiation for sin. So that anybody who needs it can in faith look up to him who is lifted up like the Old Testament symbol. And God can say, there's where I dealt with your sin. And in it, in that truth, he says that he set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So in the present time, we see Christ here lifted up, which is in contrast to his forbearance in the past that word again, the idea of holding up judgment, it's a unique word, that forbearance there. And, and the question is, why would God need to demonstrate his righteousness? And the answer is simply because if you looked at the past, God wouldn't appear to be the holy judge of sin that he is. Because if you looked at how God dealt with sin in the past, seems like a lot of people got away with things. How is it that God could be righteously patient with past sin? How was it that Moses, the murderer, Aaron, the idolater, and David, the adulterer, were passed over? Why were they not judged for their sins? How was Ahab given space with his short repentance? How was Hezekiah forgiven when his pride would come? Why was Manasseh, who's one of the worst kings, one of those with the longest reigns? How come Nineveh received grace? How come Jonah received grace? How, how come God could pass by these things? Was he playing favorites? If he really is just and righteous... Was he just letting certain people off the hook? Was his mercy unjust? And this is what Paul's dealing with. What he's saying is, God could righteously pass over the sins of the past because of the plan now revealed to deal with sin once and for all in his son. This, he had to demonstrate his righteousness. Christ is shown forth as a propitiation so that God can demonstrate he wasn't allowing anything to get away. That he was just in being patient. In Joshua 5.9, the people have entered into the land. They, they're entering into God's promises in the promised land, and they haven't even circumcised themselves. 
They haven't even stepped into the practical things that God asked them to personally. God tells them to do that, which they do. And in Joshua 5, 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is Gilgal, rolling, to this day. The idea is there was sin and judgment hanging over them. But God decided to roll it on, in a sense. I'm going to have, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to move that ahead. Paul will tell us in Acts 17.30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That in an ignorant time, God overlooked sin. He winked at the ideas he had forbearance with. Again, he, he allowed it to pass by. And John will say in 1 John 2.2 2, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world. The idea being this, where the Old Testament saints looked ahead to the Messiah, there is a lamb who's going to come to justify, as the scripture says. You and I look back to the Messiah, what Christ has done on the cross, and we believe that the lamb of God has come. So everyone, past, present, and future, needs to look at Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And God can be righteous in having mercy with people who are sinners right now. He knows you'll be a sinner in the future like me. and doesn't just kill us all. He could deal with all the sin in the world. Just have another flood and kill everybody. No more sin. That's not what he's doing. He is merciful. Because what he did is, it's like God stretched out his hand in the past, and he can stretch out his hand to the future, to the last sin that humanity commits at the white throne judgment, and, all, and it's all done with. And he took all the sin, and he rolled it right to the middle on the cross. And he said, I'm going to judge it right there. And he always knew that was the plan from before the eternal ages. And so those in the past, he said, I can just roll that on. I'm moving it somewhere already. I can have mercy if you look toward that Savior in faith. And all of us in the future, he can say, I took that sin and I roll it back. Because I dealt with it on the cross. I have my place where I have set forward my propitiation through his blood. So, God is now free to judge and justify in the past or in the future as he sees fit. Because he hasn't allowed sin to go unjudged. He's dealt with it. One of the commentators just simply says, Christ's obedience and atonement are the ground of righteousness both to the judge and and to the criminal. This is the point Paul's making. So he says in, 20, in 26 there, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The point here is, our sins aren't just forgiven, they're paid for. People like to talk about God forgiving sins, as if he can just do that however he wants. And that's not true, because he would not be just if they weren't paid for. Uh, Anselm, one of the Christian church fathers, said, if we fail to recognize the moral problem involved in God's forgiving grace, it may be because we have not yet considered how serious a thing sin is. How can God look at the people that Paul just put before him as judge without excuse and guilty and say, you're justified? How can he proclaim them not guilty and not be guilty himself? This is Paul's whole point. He can do that because of what he did on the cross through his son. Because Christ has been set forward as a propitiation because he paid for sin. 
if you decided that you were so confident that the Eagles were going to lose on Monday night that you spent all of your savings on a bet against them and then you lost. And then you decided, I need to fix this problem, so I'm going to gamble some more. And you borrowed some money from some unsavory people to try to pay off your bet quick, and it didn't work. And now you're in some pretty serious debt. And you came up here, and you were telling me your story, and you're like, you know, this is bad. Not only is my spouse going to be upset, but these guys are not going to be happy with me. And I just looked at you and said, I forgive you. It means nothing. You understand? I have no right to forgive you. It can sound nice. You could be like, you're a really forgiving guy. But it means nothing for your life. You want to know why? Because your debt is not paid. The only person who can forgive you is a person who has paid your debt. So God Almighty is the only one with the right to forgive humanity of sins because he's the only one who paid the debt. He is both just and the justifier. And he can righteously be just in judging sin or in forgiving sin. Because he and he alone is the only one who dealt with the issue. That's why there's one way to heaven. Because if we could get there ourselves through our own works, then it wouldn't matter. Any way would be as good as another. If a human being could ever get to heaven based on their own works, then we could all just work our way there. And there really wouldn't be much of a difference as to which way to get there would be better than another. But you can't. And God had to come down to us. And therefore, there's only one way. One way to salvation. One way to heaven. One way to be justified through God's own righteousness. Now he extends it to us because he's gracious. And he's done incredible things to make this salvation, which is more than we could ever describe, open to us. If you roll it backwards, you can see Paul's argument here. God is just and the justifier because he paid the price through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ as a propitiation, and he showed that. He paid that redemption price so he can now call you justified. He has the right to do that. That's the point he's making here about the Lord. And it's not just something that sounds nice. It's the truth. We don't, we don't just believe these things because they're nice religious things. We believe they're the truth. Right? We, we believe that what God says in his word is actually reality. I was reading a guy today, it was very interesting. He made the point that he was talking about religions and he said, if you read something in the newspaper or you see something online or even nowadays something's on the news or even you hear something historical, you don't just take that, you, you go and look it up. Let me see if that's fact. Try to look up other sources, you check it out. And if you do that, if you question it, and you do that, and you try to find the truth, you're, you're not a weird person. You're, you're a normal person. It's smart for you to do that. But he said this funny thing happens when we get to religion, which is actually supposed to be speaking about the truth, and probably the greatest truths that we have, where people decide, yeah, kind of anyone's okay. Where you wouldn't do that with the news, or an article, or historical sources. But, you know, Zeus or Buddha or Jesus, what's the big difference? We should, all, we should all be able to get there. And what we're really saying is that every religion's okay because every myth is equal. Because we don't think they actually relate to reality. But if it, if it is reality, then, no, every religion's not equal anymore. And what Jesus Christ has revealed to us, what the word of God gives us, 
is the truth. It's the truth of God. It's God's way of righteousness. It is extended to everyone. And anyone who begins to doubt that they could be justified or that the ransom price has been paid can look where that has been paid on the cross and can see that, God, you are just in justifying. You paid the price, and you're the only one who can, and you're the only one who has. And so you and you alone can offer what we need. It's a pretty incredible thing that he shares here. And it's a pretty incredible thing about who God is as both just and the justifier. So Paul says then in 27, where is boasting then? It's excluded. If we're saved by the work of another and condemned by our own works, we don't have much to boast about. If that realization is true, there's, there's really nothing left to boast about. Or by what? Or what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. We didn't get there by our own works. We got there by faith in what God has done. The religious Pharisee would stumble at the law of faith. They wouldn't like that. That little phrase right there that Paul would throw in that we can take for granted, that would, that would not be something they would underline in, in the message there. The law of faith. They wouldn't like that. Even though the scriptures say, the just shall live by faith. Paul already made that clear. Because they weren't going to be able to work their way. Then he says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This, this now justified, redeemed, covered in God's righteousness person, they're saved. And it has nothing to do with whether they were circumcised or kept the dietary law or kept the Sabbath. It has everything to do with God pronouncing them righteous because of the redemption price that has been paid in Jesus Christ set forth as a propitiation. And God being just to do that. That's, that's why. Is he, he says then, in 29, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. If it was still through the law, then he would be the God of the Jews only. But he says, no, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Whether you're circumcised or not, it comes through faith. That was his whole point here. God's righteousness, which has been extended rightly and justly to any human being, any sinner who needs it to all is extended and has to be grasped through faith. You believe that. I will have what you extend. You accept the gift from God's hands. You know, there was um, this uh, uh, online kind of thing around Christmas time where you could sign up to be somebody's surprise kind of Christmas friend. And they would send you a couple different things that they like, and then you would mail them gifts. And it was kind of a pool. And then somebody else would get your name. So, you know, people got a lot of, like, normal type gifts. It was nice. Well, one lady on there got picked by Bill Gates. So... You know, if I said to you, let's join the pool together, and then you find out I get you, you're like, okay, that's nice. You might send me a Bible or something like that. But if Bill Gates gets you, you're probably going to be more excited. Why? Because of what Bill Gates has, right? And he sent her all these incredible boxes. Boxes just kept showing up at the doors and all these things that were really expensive, right? And they had all these people that he hired to find out the things that she likes on social media and things like that. So she got all this stuff. The, the gifting was, of course, in accordance with who he was. If, you, if Bill Gates is going to give a gift, he's going to give a gift that's worthy of Bill Gates. 
Solomon, who had this incredible wealth, when he gave gifts, he didn't give what you were worthy of. He gave what Solomon was worthy of. Because right? it was a reflection of him. When God gives a gift, he doesn't give what we're worthy of. He gives what he's worthy of. And he gives this salvation as a gift. Freely. How it came about and how he can righteously do it we're going to be thinking about for all eternity. But the fact that he gives it, and it just needs to be received through faith, it's the best message that there is in the world. Paul says, whether you're circumcised by faith or uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. He's going to say here, and he'll go into it further. So then is the law just done with? He says, no, of course. It's established. It finds its proper place in showing us that we're needy of a Savior. It doesn't save us in and of itself. It shows us that we have sin that we need to be forgiven from. You know, outside of the law, you have people who who their only grief is that they grieved over sin at all, right? They have this freedom, like, we shouldn't ever in our world be ashamed of anything. Well, no, that, this is where the law has its place. Actually, we have a ton we should be ashamed of. <laughs> We've fallen short of the glory of God in every single area that we can. But I don't have to stay there because of what Christ has done. And that doesn't keep me from being able to receive the gift that he extends. So you can be on either side. You could be the Pharisee who's trying to work his own way there through the law. Or you could be the person who says, we don't need the law at all. Let's just get rid of it. We didn't ever have anything to be ashamed of. That's wrong, too. The law is established. It doesn't save you, but it shows you you need a savior. So Paul says, you know, he knows that when he's done this incredible saying that the next thing people are going to say is, well, well then what's even the point of it? Do we even need the law at all? Why have it here? And he says, no, 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 no. This doesn't, this doesn't get rid of the law. This establishes the law's place. It puts it in its proper form in our lives. I'm not living out the law to try to make my way to God. I'm realizing through the law, I'm not anything like him. And I look to Christ for a righteousness, not of the law, but the righteousness of God that I can receive only through faith. Isaiah 45, 21 says this. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God, and a savior. There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's nobody like him, a just God and a savior. Nowhere else. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, Choose ye among the gods whom you will. There's nobody like him what he has done, the truth that we have in his word, the beauty of what he gives us in his salvation. There's nobody like him. So what he says is, look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. If you're here tonight and you are not saved, again, give your life to Jesus Christ. Believe in the work of Christ, that God is satisfied in the work of his son, and that he will freely pronounce you justified, redeemed, covered in his blood. That's all we do. We believe in it. And for those of us who are saved, we need to remember it. Because it's easy to begin to think that now, you know, 
we were saved, but we got all these issues. How can God deal with this? Why am I still struggling with this? All your sin, past, present, future, he's taken it and he's rolled it back on the cross. We can walk in the light and have fellowship with him because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus doesn't need to die again for your sin. We need to remember it, and we need to have hope in it for those around us. That the person that you would never think this message could make a difference in their life, you need to remember that this message is more remarkable than whatever their sin is. It's the best message humanity is ever going to hear. It's the truth that's greater than any other thing that the world wants to throw out there. And it's the power of God to salvation. And he is just in both saving and pronouncing just those that he's called to himself. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I would encourage you again to be thinking on these things. There's no way I could do justice to the greatest thing that's ever happened on the face of the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you have demonstrated your love toward us. You set forth your son. And Lord, we know that it's going to take the ages to come for you to reveal your kindness, your grace, your riches toward us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you've saved us, Lord. We know there's nothing in us that makes us different than anyone else. Lord, we pray for those that we love and that we know that are still in their sin, Lord. We pray that the glorious light of the gospel of Christ would shine in their hearts and in their minds. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us again, in a fresh way, the joy of our salvation in you. Stir up, Lord, these things so that they can be truth in our lives, not just something that slips away so easily in the cares of this world. We know, Lord, this is going to be the most important thing when we step out of this life into eternity. And you've given us great hope in that. So we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.